Thanks for downloading the McKay Interview podcast. My newest guest is Martin Chungong. He's the Secretary General of the Interparliamentary Union in Geneva. That's the oldest international multilateral organization in the world. We talk about the imminent science diplomacy open forum of which he is Geneva Coalition co-chair and which is being organized and presented by the Geneva Science and Diplomacy Anticipator known as JESDA. What's its purpose? Who's involved? And how will its objectives be realized? I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Over the 10 years of this show, I've had many eminent scientists and diplomats as my guests. and It's always been illuminating for me personally because my level of scientific knowledge is pitifully low, though I hope I know more about international affairs. And then in September of last year, for those of you who listen regularly, I had the pleasure of introducing a new institution communicated by someone who needed no introduction. Peter Brabeck Limata was my guest, and he spoke in his capacity as president of the Geneva Science and Diplomacy Anticipator Foundation, GESDA. Well, this important new organization is on a good way to carving out its own significant niche, not only in international Geneva, but also globally. And this is the subject to be addressed today. My guest is Martin Chungong. Many of you listening will not be familiar with his name. Some of you will know him. But he's the Secretary General of the Interparliamentary Union here in Geneva. And it's a unique and historic organization, which we will learn about during my conversation with him. However, the reason I want to talk to him is that he's playing a special role with Jezda at an imminent and noteworthy event. Hello, Martin. Thanks for accepting my invitation to be on my show and be my guest today on the McKay interview. Thank you very much, Michael. It's my pleasure uh, to be here today. It's good to be Thank back you. in this wonderful building. Thank you. I, I can't really complain. <laughs> it's like working from home. Well, there you are. Yes, there you so are. It's there you great. Are. Thank you for coming to the House of no, Parliament. It's my pleasure. Thanks for receiving me. Martin, we've known each other a long time. And your organization is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, multilateral organization in what is known in Geneva UN circles as the international organizations. And the Geneva Science and Diplomacy Anticipator, or GESDA, it's quite a mouthful, is one of the newest having been founded only three years ago, I think, roughly, and recently received new funding for a longer period. Now, later in our conversation, I'll ask you to tell me about the IPU and its significant history. But to begin, my first question is about the moment, about now. You are the quintessential diplomat, Martin. So please explain to me what you understand by science diplomacy and the connection between you, the IPU, GESDA, and this Science Diplomacy Week, which will start on Monday the 16th of May at the United Nations Palais des Nations. What are you supposed to do? Is there something in particular about the IPU which has led to you being chosen in this leadership role rather than someone else from another international organization, Martin? Thank, thank you very much, Michael, for that question. Uh, I think uh, the point you made earlier about the IPU being uh, the oldest multilateral institution in the world and the fact that JESDA uh, JESDA is just, uh, I would say, a baby. Yeah. It's great, great, great grandson uh, <laughs> or true. sister of the IPU. It, it makes the point that uh, you have to bring the old and the new together to see how you can change the world. The IPU was founded on the value of dialogue of, as a way of bringing about peaceful coexistence in the world. And JESDA 
by articulating the importance of science and diplomacy is also promoting the idea of dialogue between science and diplomacy. Diplomacy used in its broadest sense, that is this constellation of decision makers, whether they're international organizations or classical diplomats or other governmental officials or civil society organizations coming together in a dialogue with the scientific community in order to improve upon outcomes, in order to build on the cooperation, the benefits of cooperation to make a change in the world today. This is something that has not happened until up until recently during the past 10 years for instance okay, so how, yeah, how so you can bring science and diplomacy together okay, for the benefit uh, of mankind that's a good start martin on reading the literature about this coming science diplomacy week one can only be impressed by the name stature and reputations of the various eminent people who will be present and participating you personally are involved so please give me and our listeners a flavor of what is planned and who will be there yeah, well, the, uh, first of all, uh, I go back to your uh, initial question, Michael. Uh, I think I was chosen because they needed an organization that uh, embodied the values of uh, dialogue uh, in uh, promoting peaceful coexistence and how we can use science to that effect. Uh, I am just one of several other organizations that are out there that are contributing to this exercise. I'm, I'm very grateful to Jesda for having identified me to uh, lead this uh, process, this pilot uh, project to test the waters. And uh, we are glad that we are able to bring together uh, many people. As I said in my initial uh, comments, uh, we want to extend the notion of diplomacy to include not just the ambassadors or heads of organizations such as myself, but also other decision makers at national and international level. And that is why we have identified uh, some 30 individuals from these ca different categories to come to Geneva for an immersion program to see and uh, begin to test the waters uh, uh, on the benefits of science coming together with decision making. I see. And that is what is important. Because science, as we say, doesn't lie. Science, if it's applied as it should be, does not lie. The evidence is there. And this should necessarily inform decision-making at all levels. Okay, now I understand, Martin, that there will be five themes in next week's forum. What are they? And why were those five themes chosen? After all, there must be a lot of competition for discussion and analysis, time and space, amongst such an illustrious gathering of people. Yeah, the, uh, uh, indeed, we had to make choices. I can imagine. Because the list was broad indeed. But we had to establish a number of criteria, chief of which was topicality and, uh, I would say, current relevance of the subject matters. And that is why we focused on issues that are related to climate change, global health security, in the light of uh, the pandemic that we're experiencing with COVID-19, and also looking at uh, the whole issue of multilateralism, the future of multilateralism. So those five themes relate to this uh, key area. So we will be talking about of course, we want to introduce International Geneva. There will be an introduction uh, to International Geneva. But we're also going to be talking about climate 
and the my, uh, environment, the emergency and the crisis, and I would even say the existential threat to mankind that uh, climate change poses today, looking at global health security and human augmentation, and uh, technology diplomacy, how we can also make a technological innovation work for uh, diplomacy, dialogue, and decision-making. And lastly, the future of multilateralism. You, I think we'll have the opportunity later in this conversation Absolutely. to talk about we multilateralism. We couldn't have a conversation in Geneva without talking about multilateralism. Uh, correct. Exactly. Thank you. Tell me, Martin, is it an exclusive event confined to a narrow, pre-selected group of specialists, or is it more open? No, uh, this is supposed to be a coalition. We are trying to create a coalition, as I said earlier, it is, on the one hand, science, which means all those stakeholders involved in scientific research and uh, academia, uh, technologists and all that, on the one hand, and on the other, a constellation of uh, stakeholders who have within their powers to make a difference. Whether you're talking of governments, you're talking of parliamentarians, you're talking of uh, civil society actors, you're talking of academicians and all of those, we want them to be at the table because we want to see this as a confluence between science, the scientific community, and the decision policy-making community. And uh, we are very keen, as uh, the uh, head of this organization, I'm very keen to make sure that legislators around the world are involved in this. So it's something that is open-ended for everybody to be involved. But what I meant is, imagine with somebody listening to this program now yes. and has a certain expertise or just a general level of interest, can they come or do they have to go through a sort of screening process? No, they, we, we have done uh, the initial screening process for the 30 participants who will be involved in our immersion program. And this is the a pilot project. I see. It's going to be expanded later on. But uh, it is open. The, the whole forum, the week is open to the public in general. I see. You just there's a website, uh, sciencediplomacyweek.net, and they have to register. You just go and yeah. register, okay. and uh, you know follow the discussions. Great. My guest today is Martin Chungong, Secretary General of the Interparliamentary Union in Geneva. Though today he's explaining to me his role in the upcoming Jezda Science Diplomacy Week and why it matters to all of us. Martin, I wouldn't regard myself as a cynic. I hope I'm not, but I've lived long enough to have developed a healthy sense of skepticism, especially about human behavior in the realm of politics, whether international or local. And with the current war in Ukraine still raging and seemingly no immediate end in sight, as well as other conflicts and tensions still very evident in the Middle East, different parts of Africa, in Southeast Asia, just to mention a few areas, isn't it a difficult time to be embarking on a journey of cooperation, especially in this city of multilateralism, we just said? In this current climate market, I put it to you, what you aim to achieve is certainly praiseworthy, but isn't it misplaced? It isn't, Michael. <laughs> I think that uh, what we're experiencing today makes a strong case for us to prosecute the issue of dialogue between communities with increased vigor. Mm. I think that is what we should be doing and we have a moral duty to not relent in our efforts to promote dialogue between communities if we want to achieve uh, peaceful coexistence. What is happening in Ukraine today is very clear. There has been violation of international law, UN Charter, and we need to fix that. 
Again, I want to make a case for multilateralism. People have challenged multilateralism. They have said it's broken, it is not fit for purpose today. Mm -hmm. And I tend to agree. The multilateralism that we practice today is what was designed in 1945. And we are now in 2022, 76 years later, 77 years later. We need to adapt to the times. And that is why we are bringing science into the picture. Science has a potential for helping us improve upon multilateral processes. And that is, I think, the discussion we're going to, uh, we're having uh, here today. How can we use science for peace, peaceful purposes? And uh, I will have the opportunity, if you allow me, to give you examples of what the IPU itself is doing yeah. to uh, show that peace has that, uh, sorry, science has that potential to promote peaceful coexistence between yeah. communities. Because uh, when we look at the UN today, the way it functions, when it was created in 1945, you didn't have civil society, you did not have uh, parliaments at the table, but they're all there today. You want the private sector to be involved in the deliberations of the United Nations, you want the scientific community. And I think that too often, too often, the two communities have been kept separate from each other. The time has come to bring in science into the multilateral processes. Because as I said at the beginning, science does not lie. And if we are going to be taking decisions, whether it's at the global level or at the national level, these decisions should be informed by objective fact, objective assessments, and science can provide us uh, with those tools to move forward and improve upon multilateralism. So. What we are saying is that we need a new brand of multilateralism that includes uh, a host of uh, stakeholders, that includes partnerships between people or stakeholders who traditionally have not come together. You know, people wonder why we are trying to promote scientists. They're supposed to be in the lab, as people say, but no. We should be looking at the outcome of re uh, research activities and how these results and findings can be fed into decision-making processes. We should not limit ourselves when it comes to parliaments to just political considerations. We need to uh, work on the basis of objective facts which are provided by the science community. That's why we are trying to forge this alliance between the two communities. No, a good, I, I agree with you, and that's a, that's a good explanation. Now, Martin, it's obvious to me when I read the program that the organizers of next week's forum, they've clearly put a lot of work into the what of the event. But please explain to me and our listeners the how. How can you get meaningful cooperation internationally when we seem to be on the edge, as we've just talked, or if you look at what's going on now in Ukraine, we're a smack in the middle of the opposite of the respect of sovereignty of adherence to international legal structures and the respecting of human rights and the importance of grand ideas. So heaven knows we need all of those things, but how will you get things done, Martin? Yeah, that's a question. <laughs> I, 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 I would like us to uh, just envision two scenarios. Okay. One is the one that you have described. Yes. Now we are in the face of conflict and we have the immediate duty to stop that absolutely, conflict. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's what we should be doing. I think the international system has failed in a way because we have not been able to prevent that conflict. So the duty, first of all, is to end that conflict. But what is more important, and we need to look long term, is how 
we can create conditions that would lead us to prevent such conflict from occurring again whether it's uh, Ukraine uh, invasion of Ukraine or it's just the pandemic you know we need to be prepared the international system has to be prepared and that's what we are doing again I go back to the value of dialogue a conversation between the people who can help us project into the future you, on the basis of uh, current scientific assessments. And those are the scientists, they're the technologists who can carry out that ex those experiments. But it's not a conversation of the deaf in some respects? At the extreme case, I mean, I think a very high-level diplomat said recently it was like, you know, conversation of the deaf and the dumb. No. no? Now, now, now let me go back to yeah. my uh, 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 what makes me convinced that this can work. Let me take the example of the IPU itself. We have in the IPU a committee on Middle East questions. You know, when you talk about the Middle East, it's the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And then when you start looking to the underpinnings of the conflict, you have one thing. They say scarcity of water in the region or accusations that one side, the Israelis are taking up all the water resources. We have now been able to convince both sides that you can use science the evidence that we have to produce more water so that uh, water scarcity does no longer become an object of the conflict between the two. You know, instead of crying over scarcity of water, you can grow the pie. There's scientific evidence that this is workable. And we have been able to bring the Palestinians and the Israelis together around both this li idea. Both listen, do they? Yes, they, yeah. they, 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 the Israelis are willing to provide the technology to the uh, Palestinians uh, so that they can increase the volume of water that is available. So this is just an example of what science can do to promote peace. And that is the message that we are conveying, that the diplomatic community can use this. And I'm sure many other organizations are doing uh, similar work and uh, to make sure that the s scientists, the stakeholders can contribute to the uh, discussion to resolve these issues that uh, have the potential to create conflict and uh, un unnecessary loss of life and destruction in general. So my answer is it's not unrealistic to expect this. It is a relatively new area, as we say, science diplomacy is yeah. less than 10 years old. Sure. But I think that we already have, we already have a body of uh, experience, a body of knowledge that allows us to say it is something that we have to dig deeper into. Okay, Martin, I, I have another how yes. question for you, and I'm going to quote not your words, uh, these are Jezda's words, it's in the, in the text of the, the blurb that was sent out. I'm going to quote them back at you. My preparatory notes explain that the Science Diplomacy Week, and I quote, represents a first step to create a globally recognized curriculum on science diplomacy within the next five years, it's very specific, five years, that can surmount traditional academic silos, it's a lovely word again, silos, by fostering a global policy framework, or global policy frameworks, it's plural, for theory and practice. Now, please explain to me, listen, what that grand and laudable statement of intent actually means in practice. And by the way, I'm sure you'd be the first to agree 
that traditional silos do not only exist in academia. Uh, there are many in the world of business, and I'm sure there are some of them in the international organizations too. Yes, yes. <laughs> but t- help me with, just tell me what those great words actually mean. The thing is, I think it is in recognition of the fact that I pointed out to earlier that the two communities, the scientific community and uh, I include the academic community and the scientific in the, community yeah. and the decision-making, policy-making community have stayed separate and maybe by design or unintentional. So there's that silo. We want to break that silo. We want to bring about a conversation between the two. And that is why we have uh, organized this week as a pilot project to bring together representatives of these communities to sit and say, yeah, it is possible to do this. And I admire the uh, uh, position of Jester. Well, they belong to the scientific community, and so they tend to be more structured than us diplomats. And so they say we give ourselves a time frame to work towards this, and I think it's laudable instead of leaving it open-ended. So we bring together these people in that dialogue, and we uh, pick their brains to see what their expectations are, what their own experiences are. So you create a curriculum that is uh, uh, beneficial to both communities, but also I think we have to be realistic that uh, we are not going to find a one-size-fits-all solution. We need to adopt a differentiated approach depending on the context we're dealing with, depending on the area of expertise. My colleagues here in the other organizations, you were mentioned, the labor organization, they may have other expectations of the scientific community, or the cooperation with the scientific community, just as my colleagues in WHO would. Uh, but at the end of the day, we want the two communities in the broader sense, the diplomatic community and the uh, scientific community to work together. That's the challenge. And and t- just to press you a little bit more on this, because I'm sure, I'm, I'm certainly interested, I'm sure that some of our listeners will be interested, who is going to make all of this important stuff happen? Give, us, give me a glimpse, at least, of the dramatis personae, the characters, uh, at this important forum next week. And are they coming from all over the world or a fairly narrow group from North America, the rich North? I mean, just tell us a little bit more about the who. No, they, uh, again, I say, say it's a host of uh, people, participants, that we are trying to capture uh, initially, our, the 30 uh, participants in the program, in the measure, um, measure program, come from far and wide. We have participants from pa- uh, Pakistan, Colombia, Rwanda, but we also have from our neighborhood uh, French participants, German participants, they're coming here. But when you talk of international organizations or entities, it's broad. You have the UN that is there, the UN-related agencies, the World Meteorology Organization, UNITA, which is in charge of training and research. We have uh, governments that we're trying to reach out to executives, the private sector, civil society, and all of those people who have a stake in making sure that science informs their decision-making. So it's a broad array of people whom we are reaching out to for this exercise, not just a small group. We don't think it should be an exclusive club. It should be something that reaches out to everybody. So again, you talked about some of the people who are going to be there. You have, I have uh, Ambassador uh, 
Alexandre Faso, yes, who is been on the show. Uh, yes, yeah. who has been uh, 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 Swiss ambassador to the UN in Geneva and Correct. who has now been appointed as the, the Swiss ambassador for science diplomacy, mm -hmm. which shows that the governments are increasingly convinced of the value yeah. of science diplomacy. We have my colleague of the Secretary General of the World Meteorology Organization, who is going to be with us, uh, Nick uh, Seth from UNITA. We're going to be there, but we also have the Director General of the UN Office here in Geneva, uh, Tatiana Valovaya. So it's a vast array of uh, people who in their individual capacities or co collective, co collective capacities will be contributing to the conversation. And just, um, you clearly have important objectives. Uh, there's clearly money being put behind this. How do you measure success of a week like what's coming up next week? Yes. When, um, this, the task force that I co-chair for the organization of this week, when it conceptualized this uh, week, already built in uh, monitoring and evaluation to make sure that we'll be able to capture the uh, results and impact of such a week. And uh, this is something that is ongoing. We will uh, initially, of course, be tuned to uh, this issue of monitoring and evaluation, but following the uh, week, we want to field test the observations and conclusions of the week with a number of entities at the national level to see if we, we are gaining traction, whether science and diplomacy is actually gaining traction at the national uh, level. It is something that is uh, there, and uh, generally, I think it's in the very nature of uh, science that you want to put pl in place a system whereby you evaluate uh, results. And we want, to, in this particular case, to see whether scientific cooperation, cooperation between science and political actors is really working at the national level. Uh, for the IPU, I think I can speak for, uh, for, uh, from that point of view, and I say that monitoring and evaluation is now a fact of life. That's what you do. Yes, that's what yeah. we need to do. Yeah. We need to make sure that we're having impact uh, on what we're doing. And I just take for a, an example, we promote women's political participation. It's easy there to measure impact. Is the number of women in parliament increasing or decreasing? It is something that we track and we can t tell yeah. you it's working. Sure. So th things like that uh, we, we need to be identifying for the Science and uh, Diplomacy Week that we organize. And before we close, um, just please tell me and our listeners a little bit more about the Interparliamentary Union, what its purpose is, and how it measures success. And I'm particularly interested in, in these p troubled times when many people would say um, the system has failed. Yeah, the system has failed, but uh, let me take you back to 133 years ago when the Interparliamentary Union was created, 1889, June 30th, 1889. 1889 is what yeah, it was talking 1889. Yeah. It predates the League of Nations yeah. and the United Nations, actually give birth to those two organizations. And what uh, I think was uh, relevant at that time, the virtues of dialogue is true today, dialogue. We, it's all about promoting dialogue between communities, between parliamentarians for peaceful coexistence at the time. And today, we think that it is important. We have just established a task force on Ukraine because we think that it is important to have dialogue between the parliaments of Ukraine and Russia in order to help resolve the 
ongoing conflict. So the Duma is talking to the Parliament of Ukraine. Is that through you? Yeah, yeah. Is that well, what you're saying? That's we're, tr we're doing. That, you're, you're trying. Yeah. You're, yes, you, yeah. you want to get yes, to that. We're, we're getting yeah. traction in that okay. regard, and which is important. Absolutely. But yes, very Absolutely. important. So from that point of view, we can say that we cannot just say, uh, uh, you know, adopt a, a defeatist attitude and say there's a crisis we cannot do anything about. So this organization, the IPU, then was created then with nine countries. Today we are a community of 178 uh, countries so in the world. So almost a complete um, yeah, range. Yeah, yes, yeah. and so and with different experiences, and uh, we want to make sure that we capture the goodwill that exists within this uh, parliament in order to make a difference. And so the issue of democracy is important. Trying to help parliaments live up to uh, certain standards with regard to democracy. But we don't need to stop at that. We don't want to say, okay, it's good. We preach that we want you to be democratic. We do assume that many uh, parliaments will be struggling to uh, live up to the standards of democracy that they have uh, subscribed to. And so we want to help them. We want to empower them to be more democratic in terms of their working methods, transparency, and most importantly, their ability and I think robust engagement with those powers that they have to make a difference, and that is taking their government to task, making sure that they oversee their governments and hold, holding them accountable for the commitments that they uh, undertake, whether it's at the international or the national level. So these are the things that the IPU is doing, and so you will look at our uh, strategy uh, which uh, addresses issues of women's empowerment, protection of the human rights of parliamentarians, because uh, in many jurisdictions, being a parliamentarian is a risky business. Mm -hmm. You know, they're thrown in jail. I, mean, I think it's all in the very nature of uh, parliamentarians because they criticize government. And it's a public, yeah, it's a yeah, public yeah, office. Yes. And then yeah. we're also being tuned to the times. Uh, climate change has now climbed up in the, our hierarchy of uh, priorities in the organization because we recognize this, our members recognize this. But there are other things that uh, we are doing, countering terrorism, uh, how parliaments can help prevent uh, countering terrorism by fighting, for instance, hate speech, extremism. And those things are uh, evidence of the fact that we want to move from this venerable institution that was created in 1889 and focus on what it is are the real priorities of the people today. And again, conflict prevention and conflict resolution is fundamental to this uh, mandate. That's why you would see us very involved in uh, the Middle East. I can say that uh, since 2008, the IPU has been the forum where the Israelis and Palestinians have been talking to one another without interruption. In other institutions or uh, processes, there have been lulls, there have been interruptions, but in the IPU there's that ongoing dialogue. And it creates a foundation for long-term resolution of the conflict. We, we don't claim that we can resolve the conflict alone, but we can create conditions that are conducive. Yeah. Those are the type of things that we want to do. So peaceful coexistence through dialogue remains fundamental to the IPU, and we do that by, of course, uh, bringing the moral weight of the organization to bear on the crisis, and that's why 
we had no qualms about condemning the violation of international law when it occurred recently in Good. Ukraine. Good. But we also, mm. we want to fi help fix the problem. Okay, so. Martin. That, I admire your optimism and your application, and I, I, th I thank you for answering all my questions with such patience and clarity. And I do hope that all goes ne uh, well for you and your colleagues next week. My guest today has been Martin Chungong, Secretary General of the Interparliamentary Union, and he's been explaining his role in the important Gezda Solution Science Diplomacy Week, which starts in Geneva on Monday, the 16th of May. Thank you again, Martin. Thank you, uh, Michael. I remain, I remain the eternal optimist. It is in our line of business. If you don't believe in what you're doing, then uh, you can just retire and stay home and enjoy your grandkids. It's, an, it's an important quality. Thank yes. you, Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.